and welcome back to Interpreting India. 2021 has been defined by a deadly second wave of COVID-19, precarious geopolitical relations and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Uddhav Tiwari and this week we're diving deep into the debate surrounding end-to-end encryption. In February earlier this year, the Indian government issued new rules requiring companies like WhatsApp to implement traceability in their end-to-end encrypted communication platforms. The decision originated from the government's concern about the proliferation of illegal activities in these services including terrorism, child abuse and the spread of fake news. India's actions come against amidst a growing global debate concerning government access to encrypted data. While advocates claim that the state access to end-to-end encrypted messages benefits national security, opponents have argued that it constitutes a dangerous beast for privacy while worsening cybersecurity standards. In this episode of Interpreting India, we delve into the debate surrounding end-to-end encryption. Is it possible to apply traceability without impacting the core benefits of end-to-end encryption like privacy and the freedom of expression? Could India's adoption of this requirement hamper the cybersecurity of the country? And finally, how will the growing concerns about this system impact the future of not just encryption but technology and the internet as a whole? Joining us today to answer some of these questions for this discussion is Professor Matthew Green. Matthew is an associate professor of computer science at John Hopkins University. He's a nationally recognized expert on applied cryptography and cryptographic engineering. He's also one of the creators of the Zero Cash protocol, which is used by the Zcash cryptocurrency and is a founder of the encryption startup Zituro. He's also the author of a popular blog, A Few Thoughts on Cryptographic Energy Engineering. Matthew, welcome to Interpreting India. We're delighted to have you with us. I mean let's start off with an introduction right so uh, i mean for many of our users the term end to end encryption uh, is something that they've heard about and but could you tell us a little bit about what is end to end encryption what is its significance with relation to communication platforms like whatsapp and signal um, and in general what is the background to law enforcement agencies in of course countries like india but also elsewhere in the world claiming that end to end encryption acts as an enabler for criminal activity on such services uh so so encryption is basically the idea that we can take digital communications and we can transform them into a form that is difficult for others to read so it's a way to communicate securely uh between yourself and somebody else um Encryption by itself doesn't always mean the same thing though. There are different ways to encrypt. I can encrypt information from myself up to some server, for example, the WhatsApp servers, and that means that the WhatsApp servers would be able to see the messages I'm sending, but everybody who is along the wire between the WhatsApp servers and myself would not. Um end-to-end encryption takes this farther. End-to-end encryption is the idea that we're actually going to encrypt everything that I send from myself to you another whatsapp user uh directly everything is going to be encrypted from myself to you and even whatsapp and its own servers can't see the information i'm sending and so that has become a very popular way to build secure communications platforms like whatsapp and uh signal and others uh by doing this encryption directly the downside that the sorry the upside of end to end encryption is that it means that even if somebody hacks into whatsapp servers they can't access your data 
The downside is that law enforcement has been very frustrated by this uh, all over the world, in fact, because it means that criminal investigations and other types of investigation have gotten harder. Uh, If the information is encrypted between individuals who are communicating, then they can't just go to WhatsApp and say, give us access to this content or tell us who said what. Uh, They actually have to go and find the individuals who are communicating. And this has been a source of great frustration uh, among the world's governments. And there has been a lot of policy activity around that. And I'm sorry, it was a very long question. <laughs> Piece it out to me and I'll happily answer the rest. No, no worries, Don. I mean, I didn't, it's just the second, the second part of that question was around why are law enforcement agencies in countries like India arguing that it is uh, an enabler for criminal activity? You have partially answered that question because it reduces visibility, but is there any other background that you'd like to give, especially technical background around things like maybe metadata that goes into, uh, does it truly lead to a scenario where law enforcement agencies can't see into communications at all, or is, does it reduce their access to content data, but still leaves them avenues to be able to carry out investigations? It's a complicated question. So the thing to keep in mind is that even 10, 15 years ago, law enforcement had very little access to these kinds of communications. Um, at least here in the US, uh, the widespread use of text messaging is is pretty new and you know new in the sense that I'm 45 years old. So to me, it's it's a relatively new phenomenon. And before that, of course, there was email and people made phone calls more often. Nowadays, police have these entirely new investigatory capabilities. They can go to a a provider and they can ask for all the text messages that person A sent to person B. It's extremely valuable to them. And they've gotten very, um, I think, all over the world. They've, They've become very attached to this capability. It makes investigation very easy. And so, yes, you are absolutely correct that you don't need those investigatory capabilities to fight crime and to investigate crime. Uh, in fact, there is a lot of other information that's out there, um, including, for example, metadata. Right now, most encrypted service providers like WhatsApp, they may encrypt the content, but they don't encrypt the information about who is speaking to whom. So if I were to send you a message through WhatsApp, this would leave a record inside of WhatsApp servers that some message from my phone number was sent to your phone number at a certain time of day. And yes, the police wouldn't be able to read that message. The content of the message would be encrypted, but the metadata that I sent that message is available. And so a number of people have argued to police uh, and law enforcement policymakers that this metadata is a very, very powerful investigatory tool that you know they still have access to vastly more information through this metadata than they might've had a decade ago. Um, the problem is that it's uh, it's difficult. Police know that this content is it exists, and their job would be made easier if they could actually read the content in addition to having that metadata. And so the argument it, it's very hard to to ask law enforcement to give up something they see as a capability that they should be able to use. Even if you're you're absolutely correct, there are many other sources of data in these systems and metadata as well. Um, I mean you have also written about this in the past, but India recently adopted a requirement that mandates that certain large social media intermediaries enable the traceability of messages for end-to-end encrypted communications. Could you tell us a little bit about a how do you think this may operate in practice, technically, if that were to take place, but also what some of the challenges of this approach are? Good. Yeah, traceability is a really unique uh, problem, and it's a problem that I think is very unique to India right now, at least in terms of 
uh, India's policymakers are particularly interested in traceability, whereas in other countries we have uh, law enforcement asking for different capabilities. Traceability is basically, as I understand it, the, pr the problem is that there has been a lot of viral content sent, sent through WhatsApp and other end-to-end -end encrypted systems. And this viral content has led to some pretty bad events. Um, and what, what people are asking for, and law enforcement and policymakers are asking for, is the ability to trace that content back to its originator, and maybe not its original originator, but maybe people who disseminated it. And the problem is end-to-end -end encrypted systems make it very hard to see what content people are sending and forwarding to each other. And that's by design. They're supposed to make that difficult. Uh, in the in the context of viral content, of course, that means that you know you can see that person A sent some messages to person B, but knowing which of those was some for example, video that uh, that that was later deemed to be harmful, um, that's very difficult because of encryption. Traceability is the idea that if a piece of viral content is found and it's deemed to have caused harm, that there is some way that you can follow that backwards in time to the people who originated it. And the idea, at least from policymakers, is that there's some way to do this where all we can do is trace these bad pieces of viral content without disabling or outlawing encryption altogether. So you can still have your privacy, but these particular people who are starting these viral videos and uh, forwarding them, they won't have privacy. And I appreciate the idea of this. I think it's, um, you know, it, clearly that idea comes from, I think, a good place. I think it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to have privacy for well-meaning people and then take away privacy selectively for these other cases, just because, first of all, you don't always know when somebody sends a message later on, is this going to be a piece of viral content? So how do I know when to turn off privacy? And that's the real problem with almost all of these law enforcement uh, proposals and, 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 and approaches is that, yes, they come from, they, they have good intentions, but to implement them means turning off encryption for maybe everybody or a lot of people. And that's that's really the problem with the proposals. Thanks. I mean, diving into that last bit uh, a little more, given, of course, your both technical understanding of maybe some of these proposals as well as your own work in this space, do you think it's actually even possible to implement traceability without fundamentally compromising the nature of end-to-end -end encrypted communication? I have not seen a way to do it that makes sense. And just to give you an idea, um, there are people who have tried to propose ways to do this. And essentially what they end up doing is they end up kind of leaving extra information, giving extra information to WhatsApp that says something like, I forwarded this video. And I guess if you send that information, every time somebody forwards a particular video, you, you leave a little note that says person A forwarded this video to person B. Yes, that does give you traceability. It means that if the video is found to be harmful, um, you, the police can then ask WhatsApp for that list of everyone who forwarded it. They can go backwards through that list. And maybe if they're very lucky, they'll find the original person who, who sent it or originated it, unless that person was trying to hide their identity, which is also very possible. The problem is it also means there is now this capability to make a list of everybody who forwards anything. And I don't know, I've forwarded things that, you know, in retrospect, were, were kind of stupid and, and a little bit ill-advised. And the nice thing about end-to-end -end encryption is it gives me privacy so that if I forward something that, you know, inadvertently, you know, causes problems down the line, I'm not a 
creator of viral content that is harmful to anyone. But in these systems, everybody who forwards that content, even if they didn't think about it, is now potentially going to be on a list uh, of people who are, are responsible, maybe held responsible for that. So I think right there, there's a danger. The overall point is that I have not seen a way to build this kind of traceability that doesn't add an enormous amount of information to what police have access to uh, about not just bad viral content, but also good viral content. If you criticize a politician that, you know, you send some meme about a politician, that information will now be associated with your account. So is it possible to build traceability? Yes. Is it possible to build traceability while preserving privacy for all of the other reasonable, legitimate, good things that we want privacy for in these systems? I have not seen a way to do that. Thanks. Uh, in the context of just India, um, one of the things that's unique about India's traceability proposal is it, that it doesn't just require the traceability of content, but it also requires the traceability of content from when it first enters India. Uh, now, that particular requirement, which almost creates a sort of geographical demarcation at which traceability should begin and end, also seems like a very interesting technical challenge. Uh, do you think that's either something that's doable or something that uh, that will be useful to law enforcement agencies? I understand why the law says that, uh, or the proposal says this. I think it's going to be in practice very difficult to actually enforce. I mean, the obvious way that you would do this is you would say, if you sign up for WhatsApp, for example, you have to enter your, your jurisdiction. And I think you do have to do this. You say your phone number, and if it's a phone number in India, then, then WhatsApp can assume that you're in India. And uh, other services actually require you to put an address. And so you could just have a rule that says, look, if this customer is registered as being in India, then we assume that that's you know, where the content is entering India. But it's very easy for people to create accounts in WhatsApp that are registered overseas. And if you're a person who is malicious and you're trying to enter um, you know, a bunch of viral content into the Indian, you know, ecosystem and send things around to people. All you have to do is enter a phone number that's overseas, which you can sign up for, for basically for free. Um, it seems to me that I understand the intentions behind this. I think in practice, the best you're going to get is people who are innocent, people who are kind of uh, inadvertent victims of having had something forwarded to them and forwarded forward. Whereas the actual originators, um, you might hypothetically be able to trace them, but if they do anything to, to prevent this from happening, I think it will be very easy for them to, to avoid being traced. Uh, I mean, just taking the point that you have made about how this would impact the privacy of the legitimate users, uh, could you tell us a little more about what some of the other problems that implementing traceability may create for, say, the average user on the internet? Right. So one of the things that we want is we want the idea that, you know, in text messaging, we can do things that are kind of harmless and we can talk to our friends in a way that doesn't... Um, doesn't chill speech. And so one of the things that's great about text messaging is that, you know, for, for many years, if we wanted to have a conversation, I would call, call somebody up and I would just have a conversation with them or meet them in person. And that was the way we did business. And then for a little while, it became harder to do that because we moved to written communication like email. And we all know that email is vulnerable to people hacking into your account and 
doing embarrassing things, sending emails around, posting them if you're a politician or a public figure posting them to the news. Um, what text messaging has done, I think, as to us as a society, is it's given us a way just to go back to having those private communications, those kind of freewheeling communications that we used to have in person or on the phone. Um, and it's done this using this very informal medium. The thing that kind of worries me about this is that that medium it relies on the fact that we can all kind of feel safe, that we know that if I send you some personal message, um, that is probably not going to be hacked out of my phone or out of a WhatsApp account. It's not going to be dumped somewhere. And of course, we all know that people send you know, very private information to each other uh, via text message, and, and then that can lead to very bad outcomes. So I think even if your view is, look, I am just a normal person, I'm never going to do anything that any government would be interested in. Why do I care about this? What text messaging offers us is something that is really fundamental to human communication, which is the ability to speak privately and without thinking very hard about, you know, these kind of not very important texts. And I think the minute you take that away and you start adding tracing features, you increase the risk that people will start censoring themselves before they say something. They will say, is this, is this a, you know, is this an, an ill-advised communication? And I think, you know, this might not sound like a big deal, but I think, you know, the, one of the big risks when you think about this across hundreds of millions of people is that you can, can change political conversations. You can change the entire way that societies interact, you know, going after something that you think is a very good thing to, to prevent. But I think it really does change the conversation, the way that people operate. And I think that we have a right to communicate privately and without thinking very hard about what we say, you know, as long as it's just amongst private people. Um, most traceability proposals really do damage that ability. And I, I don't know what the long-term effects are, but I don't think it's healthy. Thank you. Uh, you just, I mean, uh, in your previous answer also mentioned that uh, it's actually quite easy for malicious actors to say, just get a foreign phone number and then use that to sign up to, uh, uh, say, a WhatsApp account and therefore uh, avoid some of these traceability obligations. Uh, are there any other ways in which you could imagine adversarial actors uh, either defeating the whole point of traceability or, or otherwise compromising its effectiveness? Yeah, I, I definitely worry about this because, again, as you mentioned, it's relatively easy. If, you're, if your goal is actually to maliciously spread content, and I, I just want to kind of get a little bit more specific about this. We are talking about laws that have criminal penalties. The people who are, are traced is, is sending this content. My understanding is that this is considered a very serious offense and they will be prosecuted for doing this. And they will know this. So the people who are doing this, I suppose there are some people who just are, you know, they're not thinking very hard and maybe they sent out some videos. But we're also talking about people who are very serious criminals or are being treated as serious criminals. And serious criminals are going to take some steps, I think, knowing that this regime is in place to protect their identities. And unfortunately, protecting your identity is so easy. As I mentioned, just changing your phone number or forwarding content, or in many of these traceability proposals, making tiny changes to the way that you send images or not using the forward button or something, um, you can basically bypass most of the proposals that have been made. And the problem with this is from the point of view of a tracing system and the police, what happens when these individuals, when these actual originators take these steps, 
is that they disappear from the system. The actual originator of the content can become invisible. And now you ask yourself, who is going to show up in the resulting trace as the originator of the content? And the answer is, well, anyone that these people want to, anyone who happened to hit forward on a video, which could be millions of people or could start with you. And so the, the fear is, and by the way, there are other problems, which is, of course, people could steal your account. They could hack your WhatsApp account, which is not that hard to do. Um, and they probably will. If they know that they can avoid criminal responsibility by stealing somebody else's WhatsApp account as the, as the account through which they disseminate this content, they absolutely will which means that people who are innocent will now have to prove their innocence um, because they will appear to be the people launching this, these videos. So what really worries me is that these tracing proposals will not work to catch the people who are actually responsible. And that means somebody else is going to be on the hook. And what I really worry about is once we accept that the tracing proposals won't catch the guilty parties, who is going to be prosecuted instead? And I don't know. Um, it's probably going to be somebody, you know, who, who doesn't deserve to be. And that's the real problem is these these proposals are so fragile that, you know, it's it's almost obvious that they will not produce the results that are desired and somebody else is going to be on the hook. So I think a very clear elucidation of some of those risks where like account compromise, merely copy pasting text, not using the forward functions are all ways in which uh, like malicious actors can get away from being held liable for it. While it's the innocent people who may inadvertently like just forward that content uh, may get into even like trouble with the law for like what is most likely an innocuous action. Um, so taking like some of these bit, uh, conversations a little forward, even apart from traceability, over the last couple of months, we've seen uh, like some proposals from other sort of uh, actors in the ecosystem and that governments are considering as well um, in order to deal with the problem of um, illegal content uh, and end-to-end -end encryption, right? And arguably one of the sort of more like uh, like hot topics, let's just say, in the recent couple of months has been uh, Apple's deployment of client side scanning uh, on, on I, uh, iOS and macOS. Uh, but there are also uh, proposals around managing, uh, like mandating the sort of amounts of metadata that needs to be collection, some very um, high level proposals that homomorphic encryption may provide uh, solutions. Like, So could you just like at a high level talk about some of these um, ideas where if law, like, law enforcement agencies and governments don't think about um, traceability, they are thinking about some of these ideas and, and like both the viability of some of these ideas as well as maybe the risks that they create. So from a technical point of view, the hardest thing to build is privacy preserving systems. So building systems that keep your information secret is very hard to do. There's a lot of technology involved in doing that. So making sure that your conversations are encrypted and nobody else can hack them and read them, that's hard. Um, selectively making a system less private is actually very easy. Um, it's, it's possible to undo the uh, privacy offered by encryption relatively easy. You can just send all the data that you're, you're you know, sending to your counterparties. You could send a copy to the government in the worst case. Um, that is not currently what's on the table. Uh, what has been on the table over the last several years is uh, a set of systems called uh, key escrow systems. And the idea there is that it would give police the ability to selectively with a warrant, access your data. That was the major debate that was being held was should governments make encryption selectively 
something you could bypass. And then in 2019, um, things shifted in a very interesting way, kind of, I think, an unfortunate way, when uh, a number of world uh, attorney generals went out, and I think India was also involved in this, and asked for the ability, not so much just to access a few pieces of content with a warrant, but also they expressed dismay that they would not be able to scan in real time the text messages and photographs and videos that people were sending. They would not be able to scan them for illegal content. And the illegal content has this very broad definition. In the US, the major focus is child sexual abuse materials or media, which is to say child sexual abuse videos and images. Really, really terrible, terrible stuff. And I think, generally speaking, everybody agrees that this is something we don't want distributed. Um, but it means other things in other countries. In the UK, I know they're very concerned about terrorist recruitment videos. And I think India probably has its own unique um, types of content that, that people are concerned about. Um, and so here's the problem with this. Everybody agrees that this material is extremely bad and we don't want it to be distributed. But the problem here is to build a system that can scan in real time every single photograph or video or even text message that you're sending is to build a surveillance system that is incredibly powerful. And it's been possible in the past because we used unencrypted server-based centralized systems. So if you upload something to Facebook, for example, it does get scanned because it's Facebook and they have all the content. The minute you have a private system that has encryption and you also want to scan all this content people are sending, it becomes very, very difficult to do this without essentially giving up privacy. You're building a system that can say, is this content any good or is it bad? And we should report you to the police. The thing that worries me about this is, again, it's a situation where these kinds of systems can be designed and the idea is that they'll only be used for, for content that is really problematic, but they can easily be expanded to look for any kind of content. Governments, if they decide to add additional videos, for example, political videos, they can do this and they can do it in a way that it's very hard for you even to know that this is happening. Um, in addition, third parties can make special kinds of content that they can then disseminate to the, to the world. And if anybody sends this content, it could be a harmless uh, political advertisement, for example. If you send that content, it will trigger these systems to think that you're sending some terrible child sexual abuse video and you will be reported to the police. And we know that this is possible because people have shown how to do it. So there are a lot of risks in these systems and these, these may, mainly stem from the fact that what police are asking for is a very powerful kind of surveillance system. Thank you. Uh, I mean, I think that like, say if the Indian government were, or any other government for that matter, were to propose next year that sure, we understand why traceability is unimplementable without weakening end-to-end -end encryption. So why don't you come up with a client scanning model where if we give you a video that we say is going viral, um, you should have the ability as a service provider to immediately scan or like push it down to devices so that those devices prevent that content from going viral by essentially preventing it from being uploaded. Uh, so if governments or lawmakers were to propose this, say, client-side scanning as an alternative to traceability by not weakening encryption, but by regulating the kind of content that people can send on these platforms um, in the first place, do you think it would be effective? And if not, what would be the drawbacks to it? 
So one of the problems with these kinds of systems is it's very easy to get past them. Uh, they look for fixed known videos and fixed known images. And it's relatively easy to avoid these filters, these scanning systems, by making new versions of the picture that look exactly the same, but that don't trigger the system. There are techniques for doing this. Uh, we have a paper that we're uh, in the process of publishing that shows how to do this. So I think the most likely outcome, first of all, is that people will just resubmit new versions of the same content or new content um, that will just bypass these filters. And so again, it's a situation where you, you go to all this trouble to build this enormous scanning system and it just doesn't work. The second problem I see with this is that the, the same people who are you know, going to the originators of this content, they're malicious. They're going to find ways to avoid responsibility. So even if these viral videos or pictures do get picked up and people get prosecuted for them, it won't be the people responsible. It'll be the people who inadvertently hit forward. Um, so that's just yet another concern. So this is a very, very powerful tool with the ability to basically become a surveillance system that can look for any kind of content. And we're going to deploy it on, on a billion people. And we're going to tell them, hey, everything that you send is going to be monitoring this way. And the problem is it won't do anything. The people who are doing bad things will make a small change in their behavior and they will bypass the system, but we'll be stuck with it. And all of its bad effects, which can include some very, very negative effects, like actual compromises of real people's privacy, doing nothing, doing innocent you know, behavior. I think that is the concern here, is that these systems, they sound so reasonable. Of course, we want to stop this bad behavior, but it won't work. Thanks. Um, I mean, I think like pushing a little forward, uh, a lot of the end-to-end -end encryption communication that does take place, right? Whether it's the one within WhatsApp, uh, whether it's say in apps like Signal and even other uh, platforms that allow end-to-end -end encrypted messaging, such as sometimes even Skype, uh, actually depend on very uh, few global standards, right? Like these are either protocols or standards that have been established by people who understand encryption pretty well and um, and therefore allow it to be implemented in a uniform manner around the world and, and provide a certain level of interoperability as well. Um, what would you say uh, about the idea that some governments, uh, I don't think there are any active laws on it, uh, that are claiming that it's at this standards level that um, these proposals should be baked in. So, for example, if uh, most end-to-end -end encrypted messaging uh, in the world today uses the signal protocol, uh, like that law enforcement agencies and governments in general should focus their efforts on weakening those standards by allowing for traceability to be built into it at a standard level so that whenever any service provider were to deploy it, they would automatically start complying with some of uh, the requirements that law enforcement agencies are happening, uh, but that I have of them uh, around the world. So, so A, what would you say of mostly this idea, uh, but also um, how how important do you think is uh, are these standards processes to the push for strong encryption globally? So it's an interesting idea, and, and I will say this, in the United States, at least, we've had this debate, various versions of this encryption debate going on for, I don't know, maybe 10 years now. Um, and one of the biggest requests that I've had to policymakers, and, and many of us have had to policymakers, is tell us exactly what you want. Tell us technically what you want us to do. And, you know, you have in the United States, we have agencies like the NSA who are very technically competent and they can build systems. In fact, back in the 1990s, they built a system called the Clipper chip 
which was a dedicated chip that was supposed to go into all of our phones and was going to um, make sure that we could have encryption, but also the government could break that encryption when they needed to and had a built-in system for doing this. And this is exactly what you're talking about. That was a piece of hardware. But the idea was we would have a standard piece of encryption hardware that the government certified and we could all use. And what happened is, is, is Clipper was a catastrophic failure because first of all, it turned out to be broken. People found ways to actually bypass it. And secondly, it made no sense because the world moved on from hardware encryption to using software. Nowadays, you can't put a piece of hardware into your WhatsApp because it's an app you download onto your phone. There's no place for hardware. And so the point here is that governments learned a very, very hard lesson, which is that they don't want to put their foot out front on proposing standards and telling people technically what to do. Because the minute they do that, it's going to expose the fact that governments are very bad at telling companies how to build their technology. And they're going to be problems with that proposal. It's not going to look good. And so what's happened recently is governments have gone all the way the other way. I sit down in a room in the United States with policymakers. I had a meeting with uh, our cybersecurity czar and some folks from the NSA and the FBI. And I said, what do you want to do? What is the technology you want to deploy to achieve what you want to achieve? And the person from the NSA leaned over and said, yeah, they asked us for a proposal. We made it, but nobody wants to put it forward because they're afraid that it will be laughed at and criticized, essentially. And so I think that this is this is the problem. When you get specific about what standard you want to implement that weakens encryption, you expose yourself to the fact that putting that down on paper will be instantly criticized, and rightly so, because it will weaken encryption. People will look at this and point out the problems. And so many governments have said, we don't want to be in a position where we're saying, here is what you need to do, because people will, will point out that it's broken. Uh, instead, we want to push the onus of this onto tech companies. We want to say to WhatsApp, either you give us these capabilities or you're in trouble, and it's not our problem to figure out how to do it. And that means that if the system that implements traceability or scanning turns out to be terribly broken, the government can say, well, that's WhatsApp's fault. That's not our fault. We didn't force them to implement this broken system that led to thousands of users' information being stolen. That was WhatsApp, even though we made them do it. And so I think this idea, sorry, getting back to what you're saying, the, the possibility that private individuals are going to put these weakening proposals into standards is zero. The only way it will happen is if governments actually take that risk, take that step, and do it themselves. And I don't think governments are going to do it themselves because the minute they do, they know they're going to be blamed when it goes wrong and it will go wrong. Thanks. I, uh, I mean, everything that you just described is something that, uh, in fact, we've also seen play out in India all the way back in uh, 2015. Uh, India came out with a sort of uh, national cybersecurity policy, which also included an uh, encryption component. And that encryption policy uh, in particular uh, actually contained some of the, like tech, the technical details, right? Where plain text, yeah, plain text storage. Uh, the fact that these and like the fact that the uh, key, that it would have to have key escrow with keys being stored at the particular location that the government could request, um, and uh, and I think it was the fastest uh, like time I've seen a policy being withdrawn. It was lesser than a day. Like it was notified as a draft policy for comments, and um, the blowback on the internet in general was so strong that it 
was withdrawn and we've never really seen uh, a technically minded uh, policy like that again. And what we've seen in practice are things like the traceability laws that like sort of skip that technical question and really just get to the ultimate question that, that fundamentally just talks about making platforms deliver outcomes and not really caring too much about how they do so. And, and, and it's definitely a very interesting thing to see how that pattern played out as well in the world as well. Yeah, and I think it reflects the fact that the, the governments of the world know that, that that what they're asking for is difficult to achieve with privacy guarantees. And the minute they say prescriptively how to do it, everyone's going to point that out. And so the only possible path for them is to say, demand outcomes. And um, that, that's the strategy we've seen, and it's still the strategy we see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think like uh, in some countries like Australia, we've also seen laws like the Tola Law uh, and the Investigatory Powers Act in the United Kingdom that are all fundamentally about uh, technical access, right? Where governments, uh, rather than telling you we want this individual particular piece of data, can in fact just command uh, private entities to either deliberately engineer weaknesses into their systems that will that they can then later on exploit or even sometimes go as far as selectively turning capabilities such as encryption on and off for particular users when requested by um, sort of you know like a sufficiently powerful authority so what's your outlook in general on these tech, like laws that attempt to mandate certain forms of technical capabilities that then uh, like companies essentially have to comply with the same way that they have to comply with um, in order to say wiretap an unencrypted phone call. I think countries that implement these technical capability laws, the ones that say at the drop of a hat, we can show up and change your system to do what we think it should do. And we typically means someone in a secret service agency uh, in the UK. I think it's uh, MI5 or GCHQ that has this power. Um, I think that the countries that do this have more or less assure that their ability to lead in the technical sector is at risk. I don't think you're going to see as many popular communications applications, especially globally popular communications applications, headquartered in countries that do this. And uh, this is a big problem. And I think that um, both the UK, for example, and Australia have laws, I know very strong laws about this, and neither one hosts really very many communications companies with global reach at all. And the problem they're having now is, well, we have these laws. How do we make Facebook obey them? And the answer is we put a lot of pressure on Facebook. We can't really do anything because Facebook's not going to put any of their technical infrastructure in a country that mandates that, you know, we can make it insecure. And um, this has been, this has been a big problem for all of these countries, and I just, I, you know, I suppose there's a world where every country in the world implements a similar law. I don't think it's going to happen. And until it happens, I don't think these laws are going to be effective. They're just going to be harmful. And, you know, I, a world where we actually did have laws that said that the government could come in and redesign encryption to make it broken would be, I think, uh, a world where government functionaries made a lot of mistakes and eventually we would see the impact of that too. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the sort of like final questions, uh, what would you really see as the way forward, right? Like, I mean, of course, there is the policy perspective, but just also from the technical perspective, it's it's quite clear that this is a trend that's not going away. I mean, we could be in like the, the third or the fourth, the fifth version of the crypto wars, but with the way that encryption is growing on the internet and, and 
say just for how from how we've seen uh, how encrypted web traffic just takes up more than like you know 80% of the web tra- global web traffic now from like lesser than maybe 20 25% as le- uh, less than a decade ago um, it's it's clear that encryption is here to stay and it is only going to be deployed more and and its uh, protection and its capabilities are going to be like used by more users so uh, and that's almost always going to lead to a corresponding increase in the requests and the demands that that government agencies and governments make of of these tech companies so from a technical perspective and then from a policy perspective what do you really see as um, the way forward of not just addressing self tech concerns but um, like maybe just uh, it's it's clear that the debate will never stop being uh, like at least a partially adversarial one but are there any constructive things that that one can do technically So I think that you know just going back in time the encrypt the internet was always designed to be encrypted uh it was always the intention the the original early internet was totally insecure you would send email through a server and everybody could read it and everybody could read all your your traffic and the answer to that 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 the original inventors of the internet uh, you know had specified was don't worry everything that you send will will be encrypted and the only thing that happened was we just couldn't deploy that encryption because it was too costly uh our computers weren't fast enough and we couldn't add the encryption for a number of years and here we are in the 2020s and now we have computers that are fast enough so you're seeing basically the the final design of the internet being solidified uh you're seeing that encryption being deployed everywhere there's no reason that when i send an email to somebody that it has to be readable by people in the middle there's just no reason that's not the intention and so yes you're seeing you're seeing basically the internet being realized the way that it should be encryption is going to be ubiquitous everything is going to be encrypted just to the people who need to read it what do we do about that well my preferred answer is we don't do anything we we live with the fact that certain kinds of of communication are just you know private individual communication is just going to be private individual communication and other kinds of communication like for example facebook posts are public and if you want to surveil people's facebook public facebook posts it's fine by me um but i think that individuals one one person talking to a couple of other people that kind of communication historically wasn't something that governments could surveil very easily without following people around uh or wiretapping them and i think we have to get used to the idea that it's probably going to go back to being that way governments are not willing to accept that but i think that that would be really the preferred outcome is that private small communications private communications stay that way um you know the other alternative is we have this global policy battle where governments try to make systems less secure and more people hop to other systems that have more privacy um i don't know how that's going to go i guess maybe there's some place in the middle we might end up where some information's available i i just don't see that particular battle ending where governments think that it's going to end with uh the world going back to completely unencrypted information that they can access whenever they want. Um the only other thing I want to add to this is that there is this other movement which we're seeing happen very very frequently which is governments moving to hacking as their major tool meaning hacking devices using systems like uh NSO groups Pegasus software to hack into people's iPhones or phones so that they can actually extract information out of those phones in fact there was a big 
case recently all over the world, and I know in India as well, where a number of people's phones, uh, I think there were politicians, were found to have been have traces of this Pegasus malware on it. And I think that we're starting to see this kind of hacking become the primary tool for investigation, whereas this you know hope that we're going to build a system that allows ubiquitous surveillance really probably is not going to be feasible. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, in the United States, we have seen work uh, around things like the vulnerability equities process, where there has been an attempt to create laws and regulations around the attempts of governments to carry out government hacking. Do you think that that's, broadly speaking, a trend that should happen in more countries, that if governments are going to deploy their ability to hack, uh, their legal ability at least, to hack the devices of users that it must be done under a constrained legal framework rather than uh, the current way where it mostly happens under the radar uh, in, in the vast majority of countries around the world. I, I would love to see that. Uh, right now, I would settle for something a lot more tame, which is that people in most countries, especially the US, but you know other countries as well, that governments put some restrictions on who they can sell vulnerabilities to. Uh, right now, we had this recent case where uh, a number of former NSA hackers were pro are prosecuted for selling vulnerabilities to the United Arab Emirates, where they were used in a variety of unsavory ways. And the, right now, it's the Wild West. I mean, forget about controlling how governments use vulnerabilities. We're barely able to control how you know U.S. people are selling these to governments all over the world for any purpose at all. And I would just like to get to the point where we can say, hey... If you sell these vulnerabilities to a, a country, a foreign country, and they use them in some unpleasant way, um, you're going to get in trouble for that. And just get us there. I think that would be a big progress. Perfect. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, is there anything else like broadly on the topic of course traceability, uh, but also any of the other things that you discussed that you'd like to sort of mention that we haven't really gotten to before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think the one thing just, just to reiterate is that um, you know, there are these traceability plans and I just want to be clear what they are. I, I think it's really just simple and helpful to explain a couple of them. They basically amount to putting a watermark on every picture you sent. At least there's one that I've seen that was proposed to the court and uh, the courts in, in India. And it basically involves putting a watermark on every picture you sent. Um, and that watermark will, will follow that picture around if it gets forwarded and so on. And I guess the thing that I would ask is, you know, how do you feel about that? I don't know how the general public feels. I, I send a lot of silly things to people and don't particularly want my name attached to them, not because they're bad, but just because they're stupid. And, um, you know, this idea of putting watermarks on the materials that you send around doesn't make me feel very comfortable, but that's basically the entire technical proposal right now. So it's something to think about um, going forward. Thank you so much, Matthew, for like spending this time with us and answering all of these questions. I'm sure it's going to be very enlightening for our listeners. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to Interpreting India on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about Carnegie's research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening with us and see you next time.